0: For us to read these chapters because I think they're just very honest about the world that we live in uh, and who we are apart from the grace of God and, and what sin does to us. So, we're going to read uh, chapter 16 now and, uh, and we'll dip just a little bit into chapter 23 later on in the sermon. It's a pretty long chapter, it's the longest prophecy in the entire Old Testament, uh, but hopefully. Uh, we can stay with it to the end. So Ezekiel chapter 16. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites, your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. On the day you were born your cord was not cut nor were you washed with water to make you clean nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths no one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you rather you were thrown out into the open field for on the day you were born you were despised then i passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood and as you lay there in your blood i said to you live I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew, you who were naked and bare. Later I passed by and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewellery. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck and I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey and olive oil. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendour I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favours on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. Such things should not happen, nor should they ever occur. You also took the fine jewellery I gave you, the jewellery made of my gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes to put on them and you offered my oil and incense before them. Also the food I provided for you, the fine flour, olive oil and honey I gave you to eat, you offered as fragrant incense before them. That is what happened, declares the Sovereign Lord. And you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to the idols. Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to idols. In all your detestable practices and your prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, kicking about in your blood. Woe, woe to you, declares the Sovereign Lord. In addition to all your other wickedness, you built a mound for yourself and made a lofty shrine in every public square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty shrines and degraded your beauty, offering your body with increasing promiscuity to anyone who passed by." You engaged in prostitution with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbours, and provoked me to anger with your increasing promiscuity. So I stretched out my hand against you and reduced your territory. I gave you over to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines, who were shocked by your lewd conduct. You engaged in prostitution with the Assyrians, too, because you were insatiable. And even after that, you still were not satisfied. Then you increased your promiscuity to include Babylonia, a land of merchants, but even with this you were not satisfied. How weak-willed you are, declares the Sovereign Lord, when you do all these things acting like a brazen prostitute. When you built your mounds at the head of every street and made your lofty shrines in every public square, you are unlike a prostitute because you scorned payment. You adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. Every prostitute receives a fee but you give gifts to all your lovers bribing them to come to you from everywhere for your illicit favours. So in your prostitute, prostitution you are the opposite of others. No one runs after you for your favours. You are the very opposite for you give payment and none is given to you. Therefore you prostitutes, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says because you poured out your wealth and exposed your nakedness and your promiscuity with your lovers, and because of all your detestable idols, and because you gave them your children's blood, therefore I am going to gather all your lovers with whom you found pleasure, those you loved as well as those you hated. I will gather them against you from all around, and will strip you in front of them, and they will see all your nakedness. I will sentence you to the punishment of women who commit adultery and who shed blood, I will bring upon you the blood vengeance of my wrath and jealous anger. Then I will hand you over to your lovers and they will tear down your mounds and destroy your lofty shrines. They will strip you of your clothes and take your fine jewellery and leave you naked and bare. They will bring a mob against you who will stone you and hack you to pieces with their swords. They will burn down your houses and inflict punishment on you in the sight of many women. I will put a stop to your prostitution... And you will no longer pay your lovers. Then my wrath against you will subside and my jealous anger will turn away from you. I will be calm and no longer angry. Because you did not remember the days of your youth but enraged me with all these things, I will surely bring down on your head what you have done, declares the Sovereign Lord. Did you not add lewdness to all your other detestable practices? Everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote this proverb about you. Like mother, like daughter. You are a true daughter of your mother who despised her husband and her children and you are a true sister of your sisters who despised their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father an Amorite. Your old sister was Samaria who lived to the north of you with her daughters and your younger sister who lived to the south of you with her daughters was Sodom. You not only walked in their ways and copied their detestable practices but in all your ways you soon became more depraved than they. As sure as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you and your daughters have done. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore I did away with them as you have seen. Samaria did not commit half the sins you did. You have done more detestable things than they and have made your sisters seem righteous by all these things you have done. Bear your disgrace, for you have furnished some justification for your sisters. Because your sins were more vile than theirs, they appear more righteous than you. So then be ashamed and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear righteous. Righteous. However, I will restore the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and of Samaria and her daughters and your fortunes along with them so that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all you have done in giving them comfort. And your sisters Sodom with her daughters and Samaria with her daughters will return to what they were before and you and your daughters will return to what you were before You would not even mention your sister Sodom in the day of your pride before your wickedness was uncovered. Even so you are now scorned by the daughters of Edom and all her neighbours and the daughters of the Philistines, all those around you who despise you. You will bear the consequences of your lewdness and your detestable practices, declares the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as you deserve because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both those who are older than you and those who are younger. I will give them to you as daughters but not on the basis of my covenant with you. So I will establish my covenant with you and you will know that I am the Lord." Then when I make atonement for you, for all you have done, you will remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the Sovereign Lord. Well, it's a long and a a colourful uh, and disturbing picture, I'm sure you'll agree. Uh, But it begins this chapter by describing God's redemption of Israel. All the way back in in verses 1 to 5, God confronts Israel with a picture of who they were before he chose them, who they were before they became his people. They were not of noble birth. Their descent, Ezekiel says, was from Canaanites and Hittites and Amorites. It wasn't actually, they weren't actually descended from those nations but it's a kind of a way of saying that Israel was no better than them. They were all Israel's enemies, the people that Israel thought that they had uh, kind of won up on and Ezekiel, God is saying to them through Ezekiel, you're no better than them. Your descent is the same as their descent. You're both from pagan backgrounds. Going on, God compares Israel to this newborn baby and a newborn baby who's dumped disturbingly and distressingly uh, on a rubbish heap. Before uh, the days when abortion really took hold in in society, uh, the way that that babies were dispensed with was to throw them on the rubbish heap and it was not an uncommon practice. I read uh, an account someone sent me, a blog post this week and, and in it was a, an account from the first century, I think it was in Greece or something around that time, where a guy was writing to his wife and saying, if it's a boy, uh, keep it. If it's not, uh, just, just get rid of it uh, before I come. Uh, and that's what's going on here. There's this picture of Israel as a newborn baby dumped uh, on a rubbish heap. Their umbilical cord wasn't cut uh, they weren't washed of all the gunk from, uh, from being born. Uh, they weren't rubbed with salt. Rubbing with salt was kind of just another one of the things that they did in, in cleaning the baby. Uh, they weren't wrapped in nice new clothes. They were just turfed out because no one loved them. No one cared about them. No one wanted them. And no one who, had, uh, who passed by had any pity or compassion on them. And yet as they're lying there on this rubbish heap, uh, God says, he came along and he saw them. He saw them discarded and unwanted and God loved them. Clearly God didn't love them because they looked super attractive. They were lying there in their filth. But God loved them anyway and he says in verse 6, live. He commands them to live and then in verse 7, we find out that he made them flourish like a plant of the field and they became beautiful. There's this transformation from being discarded and disgusting to being rescued and made beautiful. So first of all, God's uh, relationship with Israel is pictured in terms of this discarded child. But then this child grows up and next Uh, the relationship between God and his people becomes a kind of, is pictured in terms of a kind of romantic relationship. So in verses 8 to 14, God passes by and and Israel has grown up and they're naked and bare and he sees that they were old enough to love. And it says, so he spread the corner of his garment over her. This seems a strange uh, thing to do but it was a kind of a way of proposing marriage. You might remember in Ruth, uh, Boaz spreads the corner of his garment uh, over Ruth. I forget about all this ring business, you know, just spread a little bit of the garment over the, <laughs> the corner of the garment. But it was a way of, it was a way of kind of symbolising, I'm going to protect you and provide for you. I, I want you to be uh, my wife. It's, it's a wonderful uh, picture, isn't it really? Uh, and that's what God is saying. He saw Israel there. He saw, he saw her beautiful uh, and and he proposed a kind of marriage relationship with them. He washed them, clothed them, put sandals on their feet, bought them costly garments, adorned them with jewellery, put a ring in their nose. It would be good to see a few more nose rings coming out. Uh, it's it shows you just how much culture has changed, uh, hasn't it? But but it's a, de- it's a depiction of God's incredible and abundant love for his people. Here they were, this, this deserted child, which he rescued and redeemed, and now an adult who he loves and enters into a, a, a bond of love with. You see, this chapter is an incredibly honest picture about both the love of God and about the reality of who we are apart from God. This chapter is incredibly honest about who we are and what we're like apart from the mercy of God. This is now, first of all, this chapter is talking about the people of Israel, what was Israel like as a people. They were like a discarded child, uh, disgusting, unwashed, unclean, unwanted But what was true of the nation was true of the individuals and what was true of them is true of us apart from the mercy of God as well. As we discovered before, as Fred said, we're all born in sin. We're all born defiled by sin, stained with blood, unwashed, unclean, unrighteous sinners. That's the reality of who we are. But here is the prodigal, extravagant, abundant love of God that he comes to us in our filth and he washes us and he cleanses us and he loves us when no one else might love us or want us and he redeems us at the cost of his own son. Now when we say that we love someone, we usually mean that we find them lovely. We find them lovable. But in the Bible, when when the Bible talks about God loving us, it's about God loving us when we were unlovely, when we were unlovable. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were God's enemies, God sent Jesus to the cross. And here in this chapter we see the defilement of sin and yet when everybody else in the world hated Israel and despised Israel, God loved them. Not because of who they were, but in spite of who they were. He washed them, cleansed them, dressed them, adorned them and crowned them with honour and he pledged, them to, pledged himself to them in love. I think this chapter is so helpful in our, in our trip through Ezekiel because it's a corrective to what we might otherwise think. So much of the book so far has been about judgement, about God's judgement on Israel for their sin. And we might come away from Ezekiel thinking that God is vindictive and nasty. But actually Ezekiel chapter 16 shows us that God's love is incredible. It's, it's so much greater than we might have possibly imagined. That God's love is extravagant, more extravagant than our love. Luther uh, called God's judgement his strange work. I don't know if you've heard that before. It's a great depiction of God's judgement. Judgment is God's strange work. It's unnatural. Judgment is unnatural for God. His default position is love. And that's what Ezekiel chapter 16 is showing to us, that God loved us in our muck and he restores and redeems those who are mired in sin. So that's the first thing really that this chapter confronts us with. Uh, it, it, It shows the prodigal, abundant, extravagant love of God in redeeming Israel. But then it goes on to portray in very vivid and revolting ways the sin of Israel. So from verse 15 to 34, God through Ezekiel highlights how his people have despised that relationship of love that he he offered to them. God was supposed to have been their husband, their one true love, their one true commitment above everything else and yet... Israel had despised that and they'd gone around selling themselves as spiritual prostitutes. It's all uh, metaphorical language in these chapters. Uh, and verse 15 kind of really gets to the heart of what was going on. But you trusted in your beauty and you used your fame to, be- to become a prostitute. So God had made these people beautiful and then instead of trusting and loving God, they trusted and loved their beauty, what God had made them and they ended up selling that then to the highest bidder or in fact to the lowest bidder as you read through the chapter. God's people were uh, spiritual prostitutes in that they were selling themselves to things and people other than God and they were spiritually sleeping around, selling their hearts to things other than God. The, uh, the next few verses after verse 15 go on to show how Israel took the good gifts that God had given them and how they used them in their prostitution. So, God, uh, so, they, so they took their fine jewellery that God had given them and used them to make idols to engage in prostitution. They took their fine clothes and used them uh, to, as priestly garments for other gods. They sacrificed the children that God had given them to, other, to, to idols and, and gods which were no gods at all. And and here in these verses, if you like, the the metaphor and the reality begins to blur. So the metaphor is uh, Israel is the bride of of God who's been dressed in these wonderful uh, things and yet it's also true that Israel really did take uh, the things, their jewellery, and, and melt it down and turn it into gods. And Israel really did take their children and sacrifice them to other gods. You can read that. Read about that in the, in the book of Kings. You see, this chapter reminds us how easy it is to fall from great heights of God's mercy to incredible depths of depravity. Verse 32 shows the depth of Israel's depravity. It tells us about Israel's non-prostitution prostitution. That is, uh, normally prostitutes... Uh, are paid for their services. But Israel is is such a prostitute, she's so full of lust uh, and so despises God that she, instead of selling herself, she actually pays other people to sleep with her. You give gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from everywhere for your illicit favours, says God. The depths of Israel's depravity knew no bounds. The kinds of sins that Israel committed in their depravity were not simply uh, sexual sins uh, and making physical idols but there are other things as well. So uh, verse 49 gives us some idea of the other kinds of sins that plagued Israel. Verse 49 talks about some of the sins that Israel's sister Sodom committed and God says, all the sins that Sodom did, you did as well, except, except you did them worse. So the kinds of sins then that Sodom did, she and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Now when we think of Sodom uh, and Gomorrah, we think of uh, what the, the account in Genesis and, and of how uh, the people of Sodom uh, wanted to sleep with the, the men. They wanted to rape the men who'd come as messengers, the angels who'd come as, as messengers. Uh, and it, you know, some people kind of say, well, where is that in this depiction of Sodom here? Well, it's in that word detestable practices. Uh, that's a, a kind of a key word in the Old Testament. It's, a, it's a, There's a Hebrew word that stands behind that uh, which means detestable things and that word is used uh, kind of in a lot of the passages in the biblical laws are to, to refer to things like all the kinds of sexual immorality that you get there, so gay sex, sex with animals, adulterous sex, all those kinds of things, they're detestable practices. And they're the kinds of things that Sodom and Gomorrah were involved in but Ezekiel and God through Ezekiel tells us that it was more than that as well. That was just kind of, you know, that was, that was just the worst of it. You know There was lots of other things going on as well. She was arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They didn't help the poor and needy. They were haughty. They they were proud. See, sin always comes as a package. You never never just get one sin, you know, one terrible sin that afflicts people, and they're they're righteous in every other respect. No, but it's a package deal. You get one, you get them all. And God says to Israel, you're the same. You're as bad as Sodom. In terms of sexual sin, in terms of pride, in terms of greed, in terms of arrogance, in every sense you're as bad as Sodom, in fact you're worse. It's worth, I think at this point, dipping into a little bit of chapter 23 which in many ways is even more graphic and horrifying than chapter 16. I think it's important to read these things and just, to, and just to let them sink in because it's very, very confronting in its depiction of sin. So chapter 23, verse 14. But she carried her prostitution still further. She saw men portrayed on a wall, figures of Chaldeans, portrayed in red with belts in their waists and flowing turbans on their heads. All of them looked like Babylonian chariot officers, natives of Chaldea. As soon as she saw them, she lusted after them and sent messages to them in Chaldea. Then the Babylonians came to her, to the bed of love, and in their lust they defiled her. After she had been defiled by them, she turned away from them in disgust. When she carried on her prostitution openly and exposed her nakedness I turned away from her in disgust just as I had turned away from her sister. Yet she became more and more promiscuous as she recalled the days of her youth when she was a prostitute in Egypt. There she lusted after her lovers whose genitals were like those of donkeys and whose emissions was like that of horses. So you longed for the lewdness of your youth when in Egypt your bosom was caressed and your breasts fondled. It's not the kind of thing that people normally read out in church or associate with Christians. And yet, it peels back the reality of sin and the sheer horror and the insatiable appetite that sin has. There's this lust for more, more and more and more and more is never enough. It's a bit of an aside, but it's interesting uh, if you read uh, the uh, things about uh, pornography and the effects that it has on people. One of the effects uh, that it has is that it just develops in people this insatiable appetite, and it and, and it can never be. Never be filled, never be satisfied. People who, who get hooked on porn get hooked on more and more porn and, and then more intense and more graphic kinds of porn. It's this, it's this slippery slope. It's this never-ending, insatiable desire. And yet what's true of porn is true of every lust and every idolatry. We have these appetites that just can never be, be filled. The more we feed them, the more we want. That's true uh, not just of sex, it's true just of, of, of appetite, isn't it? The more you feed your appetite, the more you want. Someone said something tremendously helpful to me once. They said, one of the difficult things about this, doesn't seem like a great difficulty, but one of the difficult things about living uh, on your own is that there's no one to say You've had enough. There's no one to say, you've had enough chocolate. There's no one to say you don't need another glass of wine. There's no one to say you've had two biscuits, you don't need a third one. And that might sound funny, but you know, no one had ever said to me you should think carefully about how much you eat. But it's true, isn't it, that the more you feed your appetite, the more you want. The more you think, I'll just dip into the chocolate again today, the more it just grows and grows and grows. And what's true of a simple thing like that is true of so many areas in our life, whether it's food, whether it's sex, whether it's reputation, whether it's honour, whether it's technology, whatever it might be, you feed it and it wants more. You feed it. And it wants even more again. And God is saying to the people of Israel and he's saying to us, he's peeling back the curtains of sin and he's saying, do you see what it's like? I entered into a marriage relationship with you and you've lusted after everything but me. And they'll never satisfy you because the only thing that satisfies is me. The only thing that satisfies is God himself. But the shocking tale of this chapter is that Israel had received and experienced that prodigal, abundant, extravagant love of God and they'd sold themselves to everything else but God. What is sin like? It's like the dog who keeps having sex with the toys and the table legs and whatever else it is around the house looking for love in all the wrong places. And what it ends up doing is disgusting and revolting and ugly. That's what Ezekiel's saying. That's what sin is like. It's horrific. Well, against that backdrop of the depravity of sin and the d- the dirtiness of sin, against that backdrop of a marriage between God and his people which went horribly wrong, against that backdrop, listen to these words from Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives, how just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by water through the word, to present her wholly to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. You see, what Paul is saying is that in Christ, that broken, despised marriage relationship between God and Israel has been re-established between God and the church in Jesus Christ. Jesus did that by dying on the cross and taking away the the penalty for the sin, for sinning against God's love. And God does that by making us radiant and blameless through Jesus Christ. Here in Ezekiel 16 we begin to get hints of that, what God would do in Jesus. Jesus. In uh, verses 35 to 52 of chapter 16, there's more about judgment. We've done a lot of judgment so far in Ezekiel, so we're going to skip over that. But right at the end uh, of, of this chapter, in verse 59 and following, God begins to hint at what he would do in Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 59, This is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will deal with you as you deserve, because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both those who are older than you and those who are younger. I will give them to you as daughters, but not on the basis of my covenant with you, or really not on the basis of your covenant with me. So I will establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord. Then when I make atonement for you for all you have done, you will remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the sovereign Lord. God promised in the days of Ezekiel that he would do a new thing, a new covenant, a new marriage type relationship, but not like the one that they made with him. The one that they made with him was at Mount Sinai after they came out of Egypt. And uh, and Moses took them to Sinai and God gave them the Ten Commandments and there the people said, everything that you have commanded, we will do. But they couldn't hold up their end of the bargain. And God says, my relationship with you won't be based on your covenant with me, but on my covenant with you, the one that I made to Abraham and, and, and to David." It won't be based on you and on your performance but on my promise, an everlasting promise, an everlasting covenant and a new covenant that deals with your inability to follow and to love me. It would be a new covenant in Jesus' blood, a new marriage established through Jesus Christ himself. And yet... God also says that this new covenant, this new marriage type relationship will be accompanied by shame. Did you notice that? Did you notice that God said, and when I do this, you will be ashamed. What's all that about? Why the shame? Are we supposed to be ashamed of what we do? Are we supposed to kind of receive God's forgiveness in Christ and yet still hang on to shame and be weighed down by shame? What's going on? Are we forgiven but still ashamed? Well, I guess the answer in some ways is yes and no. It helps to remember that God was speaking, first of all, not to us but to Israel And Israel would finally be ashamed when God did what he promised. When God sent Jesus to to finally make atonement for their sin, Israel would be ashamed. Why would they be ashamed? Well, the answer lies in that here in this chapter we're told that Israel will receive her two sisters as daughters. Her two sisters are Samaria. So Samaria is like the northern half of Israel that had gone off into exile a hundred years or so before and, and her other sister is Sodom who was you know, kind of like the dodgiest city in the Old Testament and, and God is saying, you're going to receive those two sisters as your daughters. That is, I'm going to restore them together with you and you're going to see that you're all the same, that you're just the same as Sodom. Sodom who, who wanted to rape those guys who came as messengers from God. You're just the same as Samaria who, who, who went off into exile a 100 years before. You're just as bad as them. God is saying that on the day that he brings atonement in Jesus Christ, the day that he brought atonement, that Israel would see that they were no better than anyone else and they would be ashamed of that and seek the mercy of God. You see that on the day of Pentecost when when Peter was preaching the first first sermon uh, after the coming of the Holy Spirit and he says to the Jews who had gathered there to hear him preach, this Jesus whom you crucified. And what happened? What must we do? They realised on that day that they were no better than anyone else and that they needed the grace and forgiveness of God and the transforming work of the Holy Spirit as much as anyone else. They needed to turn to Jesus as much as we do. It wasn't enough to be God's special people with special laws and special ceremonies and special prophets They needed the forgiving work of Jesus and the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit. And we need to realise the same thing that they realised. Are we supposed to be ashamed? Yes, actually. You see, the most confronting thing about Ezekiel 16 and Ezekiel 23 is not that it's, to be honest, just a bit gross. The most confronting thing about Ezekiel 16 and 23 is that it's a depiction of us apart from the mercy of God. The only path out of Ezekiel 16 and 23 is via shame. Shame that leads back to God The only path out of Ezekiel 16 is the path that says, God, that's me. That I, apart from your mercy, am the same as them. The only path out of Ezekiel 16 is the path that says, here I am, God, in all my filth you must save me. It would be wrong to think that that's where we stay. It would be wrong to think that we stay at shame forever or that we stay revolting and, and filthy forever. One day all our shame will be gone because we'll be spotless and blameless and holy. When Jesus completes his work of recreating his church. But for the moment, once we've turned to God, we still experience that shame and yet it's shame mixed with joy. We're ashamed of what we still are. We're ashamed that sin still plagues our lives. But every day that shame drives us again to the foot of the cross. Every day that shame drives us to the mercy of God and to the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. But it's not just a life of shame, it's a life also of joy. Joy that the grace of God could even be for us. Joy that God could come to us even in our depravity. Joy that God's mercy covers our sin and covers our shame as bad as it is. Joy because the resurrection power of God in our lives means that even though we're still full of sin. We're not what we once were and that God has placed us on that path in the Church of Jesus Christ to radiance and holiness and blamelessness. I want to uh, finish this morning by reading a poem that, uh, that I've found useful in my life. I, I forgot to print it out so it's on my phone so hopefully this works works out but the poem that i found tremendously helpful and it touches on many of these themes. One day I looked into my heart to find out all my sin. I found myself a rotten man. I found no good within. Too many sins were there to count and some that seemed too great. What could be done that I could do to overcome mistakes? Yet in my grief the Father gave the smallest little vial. What is therein, he said to me, could wash away the Nile. What power in this vial must be to all my filth remove, to make my crooked highways straight, my rocky places smooth. This is the blood of my own Son. His wounds have paid your dues. On him was all my judgment spent, on curses meant for you. How precious then this vial must be, why would it why should it be for me when all I've done is scheme and hurt and cause you injury what I have done I did for thee but more for my own name to bring back what the devil said could never be reclaimed so when I took this vial as mine I dared to look inside I found a single drop of blood and nothing else beside but then my heart found cause to doubt is one drop all that's needed for I have done such wrong to you more cleansing lord i pleaded you heard the words i spoke to you all that i give suffices just trust in me and rest in me and lay aside your vices o lord to give my doubts and fears and help me trust in thee one drop one precious drop of blood enough to set me free let's pray Dear Heavenly Father, when we look inside our own hearts, the truth is, Lord, we find so little of value. Lord, so many things stained by sin, so many things corrupted, so many good things turned into ultimate things, so many good things turned into the things which supplant you. Lord, the truth is that our hearts spew out the filth of sin every day. And every day we find ourselves despising you and despising your commitment of love to us and to the people that you've made. Lord, this chapter confronts us with all the ugliness of our sin. It holds it before us in the starkest ways. Oh Lord, that we would see it. Lord, that we would own it. Lord, that we would be able to acknowledge it and to say, Lord, that this is me apart from your grace. Lord, we ask that you would have mercy on us, that you would forgive us in Jesus Christ, that all the sins that mar our lives would be heaped on the cross and put to death there. Lord, we pray that through your spirit, we might share in his resurrection and that you might set us on that path already today toward holiness and blamelessness. Lord, it's hard to imagine when we have done such wrong to you. It's hard to imagine the day when we will be without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Oh God, hasten that day and help us to trust in you and hope in you as we wait. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.